today. Um, to begin with, though, before I ask you if you have questions, uh, we had a question last week about in Psalm 2-7, what was the today I have become your father? Who asked that? Raquel, did you ask that question? I'm trying to remember. I remember you were sitting over here. Okay. So um, in answer to that question, I'm going to read for you Dr. George Guthrie's answer because he'd do a better job of answering it than me anyway. And uh, so he says that the author of Hebrews sees the fulfillment of prophecy in Jesus in this, in this Psalm of 2-7. And uh, so this is, this is what he says. He says, the early church understood these passages to refer to Jesus' induction into his royal position as king of the universe at the resurrection and exaltation. So it is resurrection and then his ascension. Uh, so that would be the today. Um, with these events, God vindicated Jesus as Messiah and established his eternal kingdom. God's becoming the son's father then refers to God's open expression of their relationship upon Christ's enthronement, an, inter- an interpretation that fits both the Old Testament uh, and New Testament context in question. Um, now, having said that, uh, Jesus has always been. Jesus is uncreated. He has always been Lord. He has always been king of the universe. In sense, by saying, today I have become your father, it, God is making a proclamation that now this is, this is evident, you know, above, below, on the earth. You know, this is, this is what has always been is now made manifest. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but the today, the today would be referring to uh, Jesus' exaltation, his resurrection, and then his ascension to heaven, which isn't a 24-hour day, obviously. <laughs> There's some days in between, but, um, but that's what the today would refer to. Today sometimes refers to a period of time. Um, so uh, any other questions, like questions from this week? Yes, Connie. Yes. What are the acts that, let's, what page is that on? Thank you. I have my lectures in with the, um, the study, so. Question, what did you say? Question 14. Oh, now I'm breathing into this thing. <laughs> Luke, I am your father. Okay. Um, the death there doesn't necessarily refer to necessarily refer to eternal death. There, I mean, there there can be. Um, <clears throat> I mean, ultimately, it does refer to that. But any acts, any sinful acts, any acts that drive us from God, any acts that that um, keep us from God and 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 put a wedge in that relationship, are ultimately leading to our death, and are killing us honestly seriously i mean i thinking of someone right now whose choices in life are are killing him he doesn't even know it but they are um so and and spiritually and physically so uh, i i would say that's primarily the question uh and then my answer which honestly means nothing um is that uh those those sins that come from a defiant rebellious heart uh, because that's part of what he was talking about there. Any other questions? 
you have one. You're just, you're kind of going, do I ask this? Uh, the Reader's Digest version of that would be you're talking to a Calvinist. I would say no, <laughs> uh, and I will actually support that uh, a little bit, but not completely because that would be an entire lecture. Uh, but Christians disagree on that. So I would say that there's far better support that you cannot because there are whole passages uh, of, of Scripture over and over and over again. Not, not, not single verses like they would point to, to that verse there, that, that those uh, who have done these things cannot then come back to repentance uh, again, is what it says. Uh, so they'll take that verse. But I'm like, Romans 8, the whole chapter, you know, John 6, the whole chapter, you know. So it's more than just, you know, Jesus said, of those you have given me, I have lost none. That's a, that's a verse but that's a, that's a verse that can be taken out of context. So you have to, I think you have to look, and we will a little bit, look at the whole context of Hebrews, the whole context of what he's saying in Hebrews, including what he's going to say in Hebrews 10 in this case, uh, and not just take that out and say, see, you, you can lose your salvation based on this. That is, the, that is the unforgivable sin, which would ultimately be rejection of Christ. But so long as we are living, we have opportunity to, to accept Christ. So the, the sin against the whole, the unforgivable sin is rejection of Christ. But the judgment for that isn't meted out in, until we no longer have opportunity to turn and repent of that. Okay? Any other questions? In my opinion. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you, um, Father. I just think years ago um, of the mother who was driving up to her church. Actually, it was Avery Church. And this little boy, who's now probably in his mid-20s, looked at his mother and said, Oh, this is the place that I love. Father, I felt that as I, as I walked in here this morning. This is the place that I love. And I love these women, and I, I just am so grateful for this opportunity to teach. Would you please, Father, give me the right words to say as I teach today in Jesus' name. Amen. Where are my Avery women? Luke Kershaw said that to his mother <laughs> when he was about three years old. Um, so let's look back then a little bit at what just preceded this, because obviously our author has made a turn here. He, he was uh, giving us, or beginning to give us an exposition on the priesthood of Jesus, and he had introduced that in Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, and then he just, he just takes, you know, a turn and begins exhorting them and, and confronting them, actually, on their situation. So in Hebrews 5, through, 1 through 10, which is the introduction to that great exposition that will go through most of chapter 10, uh, the author has compared and contrasted Jesus as our great high priest to every high priest. The things that are true of both of them and the things that are true only of Jesus as our great high priest. And then he tells us that Jesus is not a priest in the order of Aaron, in the line of Aaron. He is actually a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then he drops it. He will come back to it, however, uh, later. But now then, before moving forward with his exposition on the priesthood, 
uh, our, our author wants to address some issues, and, and in particular, an issue that some in the church are having. And it's a serious problem, and that is their lack of willingness to learn and grow. And so first he's going to confront them with this lack of willingness to listen, to hear, to learn, and to grow to maturity. And then he's going to give, him, give them an exhortation. And that exhortation is about moving on to spiritual maturity. And then he's going to give them a really harsh warning. It's certainly the harshest in Hebrews, and it's among the harshest in the entire New Testament. Uh, that is um, about apostasy. Apostasy means rejection of Christ. And in particular, it means uh, rejection by those who at least once professed a faith in Christ and then have turned and rejected him. They have become apostate. Um, and then he's going to end with this encouraging expectation that he has for them, that they will persevere, that they will grow and mature in their faith. Um, so first he begins by confronting them in love. And, and I want to point out here that, that this, this is in love. He is a pastor with a pastor's heart for these people, and he wants what is best for them. And we know as moms that sometimes that involves pain, and sometimes it involves confrontation. So he's not doing this. He's, he's pleading with them as one who loves them. In uh, the first, why are we at, okay, 11 through 14. That's exactly where we're supposed to be. Uh, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, those, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So he begins by saying, we have much to say about this, about Christ's priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. But they, or at least some of them, aren't mature enough to handle that exposition. Even if they understand it, they won't receive it. They won't hear it. They won't listen to it. They may hear it, but they won't listen to it. Now, it's not a question of intelligence. They are definitely smart enough. He says, by now you should be teachers. So they're definitely smart enough. And it isn't a question of how difficult the teaching is, although it's deep. Um, it is certainly understandable. Rather, the problem is their willingness to learn, or more specifically, the lack thereof. Uh, their unwillingness to learn. Now, the purpose of this passage is that the author knows what he's about to do, he, and he knows what he's about to teach, and he knows it's deep, and I'm not trying to scare you because you're about to, you know, study it too, but he knows it's deep stuff, so he wants to get their attention. He's telling them to sit up and take notice. Essentially, he's saying, look, y'all need to put your spiritual thinking caps on because you know, I'm not going to, we're, we're, we're about to get deep here. You know, I'm not going to give you any of that spiritual board book stuff anymore. You know, any of that, you know, chicka chicka boom boom. No, we're done with that. We're moving on uh, to something deep now. And he says that they are slow to learn. Actually, that means they are spiritually hard of hearing. Uh, that word means something like sluggish, slow, 
lazy, or negligent. But it was often used, it was often used as to say having a person's ears stopped up with laziness. In other words, they're so lazy, they refuse to listen to wisdom. Uh, and so this is, this is not a lack of ability. It's a lack of will and desire on their part. They are lazy in hearing the word of God. In fact, the Greek word for lazy has to do with learning by hearing. Uh, for that word for slow to learn. So this exhortation has to do with their inattention to the public proclamation of scripture, the teaching of truth, that they're not paying attention to what is being taught to them. Which brings to mind his exhortation in Hebrews 2.1, where he says, pay more careful attention to what we have heard. And he's saying, y'all not doing that. You're not paying attention. Pay attention to what you have heard. Now, these are not new believers. These aren't people that haven't had time to learn the truth yet. He says that. He says they've been around for a while. They may be needing spiritual baby food or still desiring that, um, but they're not new Christians. Uh, by this time, in fact, he says they should actually be teaching others, uh, the, even the deeper truths, but they aren't. They're only familiar with the elementary truths of the faith, the spiritual ABCs, if you will. And there's nothing wrong with those teachings. In fact, they are necessary. But the problem is that the author's hearers were not moving beyond those. They were just sticking with the ABCs of the faith and not going beyond that. And then he says they're not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. And that's what, what he means by that is they're not acquainted with solid food, with meat, with real spiritual meat. Well then, so what is the teaching about righteousness? Well, there's a lot of disagreement on that, on what that could be. And it could be a wide range of things, and it probably is. He probably meant a number of things. So I'm just going to quote Dr. Guthrie because I think this, is, this explains it best. The, the, the teaching about righteousness is advanced theological instruction that stresses the cost and responsibilities of discipleship. Advanced theological instruction that stresses the cost and responsibilities of discipleship. And there's a reason that's important, especially for these people. Because remember their situation. The root of their problem is a moral failure. It is a refusal to learn because they fear it will lead to more persecution. So they're sitting there thinking, if I get really serious about this... I mean, if I really go full on for Jesus, I'm going to become a target like our leaders are that are full on for Jesus. I don't want that. Maybe I could just like kind of play around with it and still kind of stay in the game but not get persecuted. And what the author is saying is, no, you can't do that. You need to move on. The only way you will be able to persevere in the faith is if you go deeper. You must go deeper, regardless of what the cost of that might be. Therefore... Um, because they were not wanting to go deeper, they were not wanting to be persecuted, some were not responding 
to instruction. This is what uh, Dr. Guthrie says about this. He says, these milk drinkers are in a perilous situation because they have neither an understanding nor an inclination toward deeper matters of the faith by which one understands the importance of perseverance. So they're saying, you know, we really don't want to go deeper. We, we're kind of comfy here. We're not going to get persecuted here. But the problem is that they're going to have trials no matter what they do. And the only way they're going to persevere through those trials is to go deeper in the faith. So um, he's saying you need to do that. He says solid food is for the mature. And what he's saying then is, for example, the exposition about Jesus I'm about to give you on the priesthood of Jesus Christ that I'm about to give you in chapters 7 through 10. And then it says, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Constant use kind of gives a picture of who by spending time in the scriptures and learning of it have learned to distinguish good from evil. And that's not wrong because obviously the, way, the, the number one way we mature is through the word of God. But that word constant use, use actually more accurately means a state or a, being, a state or a condition of maturity. A state or a condition of maturity. So in other words, the spiritually mature, because of their mature state or condition, possess the ability to discern spiritual and moral truth. Uh, now obviously they get there that, to that state of maturity through the scriptures. But what he's saying is the only way you're going to persevere is if you, are, if you have the state of maturity. The only way you're going to get to that state of maturity is to pay more careful attention to the deeper truths of the faith. Um, and he gives them this, this image of, of maturity. And he challenges them with this image of maturity so that they may desire to pursue the deeper issues of the faith. And then they'll be able to make right choices in difficult situations because they are spiritually mature. They will persevere. So as you can see, this is an exhortation that very much has in mind what he's about to teach uh, to them. And then he tells them to move on to maturity. He exhorts them. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will, we will do so. So he says, therefore... And then he says something unexpected, because you would think he, he would say, you guys still need spiritual milk, therefore, I'm going to go over this again. Get out your bottles, you know, we're going we're gonna to go at this again, and, and one more time. I'm, no, that's not where he goes with it. He says, you still need spiritual milk, therefore, I'm going to move you up to the adult table. I'm about to give you some real meat. Not that nasty Gerber meat. Does anybody just really regret feeding that to their children? I felt guilty. You know, it's like, who eats this nasty Gerber? Did you? Yeah, all of you are looking at me like, oh, that stuff's nasty. Yeah, some of it was okay. The bananas and the peaches, but oh, that meat. And he says, I'm going to move you up to the adult table. I'm going to give you real solid food. So be prepared for that. Let's move on to maturity. Um, and, uh, oh, where am I? Sorry. Uh, so let's move on. 
Now, he says, let's move on. That actually, more accurately, is let's be carried on to maturity. Now, if you're being carried by someone else, you're not doing the moving, really, are you? Someone is moving you. And he doesn't mean he's moving them because he says, let's be carried on. What he's saying is, ultimately, your spiritual maturity is dependent upon God. God will mature you. You need to put yourself in a position and be willing to be matured. But ultimately, God will work that in your life. I wasn't going to mention this, but I need to mention this. Part of why I'm so scatterbrained this morning is that I was up at 4 o'clock this morning. My, my mother-in-law fell again. It's a long story. But do you remember that I told you what I was praying through this process for me? Uh, as well as for her and for my husband. I can't explain to you. I was driving here today, listening to Watermark worshiping. And I, I've had the craziest, most unbelievably busy week of my life, I believe. And I thought that after I taught today, I'd have some freedom. And I found out at 4 a.m. I won't. But here's the deal. I'm okay. And when I went over early this morning, I really did have joy. And, how, as long, and I, she was okay. So that's, that helps. Well, okay as she can be. Uh, you know, I really did have joy. And I really did have patience. For real. Not pretend I'm going to act like I'm happy in front of you. And then I'm going to turn away and go, oy vey. No. For real. I can't explain that any other way. I was praying on my way here. And I said, Lord, I know me. I know what's actually inside of me, and this ain't it. This is not me. It's got to be somebody else producing it in me because I am not naturally this way. Ask my children or my husband. That's God maturing me. That's God, I'm not trying to make this about me, but that's God moving me on to maturity through his word, through prayer, and through the experiences of my life. And that's what he's telling them. Let's be carried on. Let's allow God to carry us on to maturity. Um, but when they do that, they're going to leave something behind. And what they're leaving behind are basic teachings. But the, I, I want to stress, those basic, basic teachings are good. In fact, they're necessary. You can't learn the deeper truths without first knowing the basic truths. But once they're mastered... We must move on to deeper things. Think about it, ladies. Especially those of you with little kids, okay? And you're in the car with the kids, and you're listening to, the wheels on the bus go round and, yeah, right, round and round. And all of you with older kids are like, please don't bring that back up. I'm going to be thinking of it all day long. When was the last time that you were alone in the car? And for some of you, it's like, I don't remember the last time I was alone in the car. But when was the last time you were alone in the car when you had small children? And you decided, you know what I really want to listen to is, when you hug red and yellow, you get orange. No, you don't listen to that. Those basic truths, those basic principles. You've moved on. And that's what he's saying. There's nothing wrong with when you hug red and yellow, you get orange. It teaches you something. But you're not going to listen to that for the rest of your life because you've learned it. Let's move on. We sometimes need to be reminded of things, but let's move on to the deeper truths of the faith. So what are those foundational teachings? And he tells us here what those foundational teachings are. Let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So uh, this, these are pairs here, the first being 
repentance and faith, or faith and repentance, excuse me, um, and, no, repentance and faith, baptisms and laying on of hands, and resurrection and uh, judgment. It could be three different sets of teachings, so six things that are the foundational teachings. That could be what he's saying. I think it's more likely, possibly, that repentance and faith are the foundation. That when we repent and have faith, that is our foundation. And, and then the other things uh, are, are what make up, are the teachings that make up um, that foundation. Um, so, in other words, the foundation of repentance and faith is instruction about baptism, laying on of hands, uh, it's actually baptisms, resurrection, uh, and eternal judgment. So that the, that's the teaching that is that foundation. Now, repentance means, literally means to turn away from sin. It literally means to do a 180 turn away from sin. I heard a teacher once teaching about this, and some of you have heard this before because I say this a lot, that was teaching, and they said, so repentance means to turn away from sin. It means a 360-degree turn away from sin. And so, you know, but, <laughs> no, that's not what it means. But we do that sometimes, don't we? You know, we're like, no, I need to turn away from that. But, you know, I kind of like that. So we do that sometimes. Uh, but, but it means to turn away, to turn completely away from sin. But when we turn away from sin, we need to turn toward something. Because you can turn away from sin and then turn to something just as bad uh, or just as untrue. So faith is turning toward God. So repentance and faith are turning away from sin and turning toward God. And these two things together uh, comprise the, the initial step of Christian commitment to come to faith in Christ. And then he says baptisms and laying on of hands. Because the word baptisms is plural, it has led a lot of scholars to think that it's something other than Christian baptism. Um, the problem with that is that any other sort of baptism isn't really a foundational teaching of Christianity, is it? <laughs> and and that's a, to me, that's a real problem. Not both scholars I read this week agreed with this, but I do think it's best to see this as Christian baptism, that that's a foundational teaching um, of Christianity. But why is it plural then? It could just be because they had all been baptism, uh, baptismed. <laughs> there you go. That's good English. Baptized. So, so we have all been baptized. We have had each, uh, there, there are a number of baptisms that have taken place among us. Uh, that, that could be why. There are other reasons, but um, we don't have time to get into those right now. If you're really interested in that, I can talk to you about it. Um, and then he says laying on of hands, which actually was, was something that was affiliated with coming to Christ as well, that people would lay hands on you and pray. But it also was and is used in a number of other situations, usually associated with some other rite, like uh, ordination or something like that, praying for someone. When we send people off on a mission trip, oftentimes we'll bring them up and people will pray and lay their hands on, on people. So they're commissioning those people to go on a mission trip. Uh, so baptism and laying on of hands. Resurrection and judgment are the two cornerstone teachings of the end of the age. Just real briefly, 
and we can't get into the details of this, but resurrection and judgment are, are the resurrection of both the living and the dead at the end of time to live eternally with Christ. And you can learn about this in 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul says that we will not all die. Uh, and, the, and then he says that at the shout uh, and at the return of, of Jesus, the trumpet call of God, the dead will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will join them to meet them in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. So at some point, and i got to tell you, I'm so excited about this, we will all be resurrected to resurrected perfect bodies. We will be like Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. I'm looking forward to that. I think it's going to be about a size six body. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited about that for a number of reasons. But there is also judgment uh, implied there. And, and, and there's a judgment of believers too. Again, I don't want to get into the timeline or the details of that. Uh, that's a completely different lecture. But these, com- these, these teachings then he's saying, if you notice, they're moving from initial faith to final salvation. They're kind of chronological as they move th- through that. And finally, in verse 3, he uh, exudes confidence in them that they will move forward. God permitting, let's move forward and, and to the deeper things, and God permitting, we will do so. So he's, he's called them spiritual babies. He's done a little spiritual tra- trash talking with them. Uh, you know, baby. And, but he's saying, I'm, but I'm confident. I'm confident you won't remain that way. Let's move on. Uh, so how do we p- apply this? You know, when, <laughs> I say when your kids are little, or, and some of you are like, hey, I still are. Remember the, the well baby checks? So you'd take them every so often to have them checked up just to make sure everything was okay. Well, let's have a little well believer check here uh, as we apply this. Because I believe that spiritual maturity I was going to say should be the natural outgrowth, but really, truly, it's the super, we're being carried forward, the supernatural outgrowth of every believer, which means that in our churches, we should be intentionally discipling and developing new believers and older believers, but that's uh, uh, within our churches, but that's a topic for another group, not this. If, if, I, if the pastors ever ask me about that, I'll talk to them, but uh, this, that's another topic. So I, what I'd rather do is look at our own lives and, and see in our own lives, is that growth and spiritual maturity happening in my life? So just a couple of, of things to, um, to think about. You know, and we can ask ourselves, Am I becoming more mature? Am I more mature now than I was 10 years ago, 5 years ago, even 1 year ago? Am I growing in Christ-likeness as I grow older? We ought to humbly be able to see growth and change in our lives over time. Not between today and tomorrow, although this week has been pretty monumental for me. Um, But just, you know, over a period of time. Uh, secondly, actually this is first, that was a different thing, but never mind. Uh, a couple of, of things to, to, to ask yourself. Um, how do I respond when I am confronted by truth spoken in love? Do I respond defensively? Do I think, how can you judge me? Or do I instead admit my error, see and admit my error, and seek God's grace for that. 
Uh, one thing I've learned, I, I will be 52 next week. One thing I've learned is that when I get defensive, I am almost always wrong, if I'm honest about it. I remember a time a number of years back when I was really, really angry with one sister whom I will not name. But it wasn't Missy because I'm going to name her. I mean, I was angry. And I was spewing at Missy. And I was, and she said this, and this is what she meant, and she wants to do this, and she... And Missy looked me in the eye and said, Amy, stop it. You are not thinking the best of your sister. And I went, <laughs> you're right. You're right. And I could have gotten defensive. And I, Did you see what she did? Did you hear what she said? You can't judge me. But that one time, and Missy has confronted me many times, all my sisters have actually, um, in love, in love, spoken truth to me. We need to receive that. We need to be able to hear that if we're growing in Christ-likeness. Secondly, am I growing deeper in my understanding of God and his word? Am I desiring it more and more? Am I understanding and applying it better and better? Has it had an impact on my behavior and my choices over time? Well, let's move on because we're, we're running out of time. Uh, but now he's going to give him this, give them this harsh word of warning. In, in verses 4 through 8, we're going to start with 4 through 6. And he says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now, before we dig into this, let me tell you what the author's purpose is here. The author's purpose is to, to instill in his listeners and us a healthy fear um, of, of drifting away from God, of turning away from God. This is a warning to them. It's sort of an implied exhortation. The exhortation would be, don't do that. Um, and so that's his purpose. It is not an exposition of apostasy or assurance of salvation, either one. Um, so it's not some sort of, of discussion of rejection of Jesus. So it's, it's, a, it's more of an implied exhortation not to turn away. Secondly, my purpose as I teach this is primarily to exposit, to interpret these verses rightly. We will touch on the topics of assurance of salvation in 15 minutes or less. Um, but a complete treatment of that, you know, let's, let's do Romans again sometime. When we get to Romans 8, we can talk about that more fully. So, so the warning, the central assertion of the warning here in verses 4 through 6 is that it is impossible for those, and then he lists a number of clauses, to be brought back to repentance. Actually, more literally, it's, it is impossible for the ones described to renew to repentance again. Sort of implying that they, that they had repented once already. And that is impossible because they are crucifying Jesus all over again and subjecting him to ridicule. Now, in the Greek, one way that you show emphasis is to put 
a word first in the sentence. And actually the first word of that first ver that verse 4 is actually impossible. It actually says impossible it is, which always reminds me of Yoda. <laughs> Have I done this before? Impossible it is. <laughs> yeah, my kids love that. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's impossible it is for them to be brought back to repentance. Um, so, so then he gives these five intervening clauses, the first one being having once been, been enlightened. I mention this only because I think it's cool. That word enlightened is photizo, photo, light. And what it means is um, that... Um, that they have had an initial exposure to the gospel. They have been exposed to the gospel. They have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. So who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. I wish it wouldn't keep doing that. Who, I'm not wearing this outfit again. Who, I, well, to teach. I like this outfit. Uh, tasted does not mean to have dabbled in. Like, I just have a little taste of that. It means to have experienced something. So they've experienced the heavenly gift. They've experienced that probably means God's blessings. It may even mean salvation. Um, we're, we can't be sure about that, but it may mean that. And then it says, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. It literally means they are sharers or partakers. They are companions of the Holy Spirit. And then it says, they have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. That wording is very reminiscent of the wording about the ancient Israelites when they were wandering in the desert and they had seen what God had done and they had experienced his power and yet they still refused to obey and enter the land. And so these people are kind of the same way. They've experienced what God has to offer and they're refusing, uh, they're, they're, they're turning away from that rather than walking into it. And then it says, if they fall away. Actually, more literally, I said that a lot today, sorry. But more literally, it should be interpreted, and then fall away. So if, they ha if this has been true of them, and then they fall away, uh, it is impossible uh, for them to come back, to be brought back to repentance again, to be renewed to repentance again. So if they fall away, meaning they reject Christ. Uh, why? Why is that impossible? Because they are crucifying Christ all over again. They are identifying with those at the cross who rejected Christ, who saw the cross as the ultimate expression of a rejection, and they are subjecting him to public disgrace. They are mocking Christ, just as some at the foot of the cross did. They are disparaging his claim to be Messiah. Okay, that's what it says. But now what does that mean then? Well, I want you to keep a few things in mind. First of all, about true repentance. Because true repentance means turning away from sin. And when we get to chapter 10, our author is going to tell us that there is no other sacrifice for sin. If you don't turn to Jesus for, for forgiveness of sins... There is no other option for you. There is no other way to have your sins forgiven. He'll go into it in detail. But because that's the only way to be forgiven, then therefore, if someone rejects Christ, there is no other place to turn 
for repentance, at least effective repentance. There exists no other remedy for sin. William Lane, a brilliant theologian, says the apostate, in effect, has turned his or her back on the only means available for forgiveness before God. I also want you to notice something really important here. He changes tenses in the middle of this. When he was describing them, it was all in the past tense. And then he turns and he says, because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of uh, all over again and subjecting him. So now it's present tense, not past tense. And that could suggest an action that is in progress, that is ongoing. So the author could be saying that repentance is not possible because that person is currently rejecting Christ. In that state of apostasy, repentance is impossible. Um, and then the third thing I want to mention before we move on is this idea of assurance of salvation, which I, I mentioned before uh, when we had the questions. Um, I believe that it is the consistent teaching of the Bible that when we talk about something like this, some big topic of this, we need to look at the Bible as a whole, not pick a verse out of Hebrews or a verse out of Romans. I think we need to look at it as a whole. And I believe it is the consistent teaching of the New Testament, uh, in particular, that, that, we, that we are assured of our salvation, that if we are truly saved, and I believe the only one that can know that, I, I don't think I can know if you're truly saved. I really can only know if I am. And I'm not even, I don't, you know, God ultimately is the arbiter of that. I'm really glad it's God and not me, or, or you especially, um, <laughs> for me. Uh, and I'm sure you're glad it's not me, for you. Uh, so, and, and just to give you a few, if you want to look up some passages in the New Testament, Romans 5, Romans 8, and John 6, among others, that I believe teach that if we are truly saved, there's nothing we can do to lose our salvation. Um, so therefore, I would disagree with those who say that, that a true believer can truly become a, a, a complete apostate and be damned to hell. And here's part of why I believe that too, not only biblically, but our salvation was and is completely affected by Jesus Christ. There's nothing we do to earn it. And all we must do is accept it by faith. And even that is of God. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for you have been saved by grace through faith and that from God. Even our faith is a gift from God, uh, not of works, lest any man should, uh, should boast. So if there is nothing we can do to gain salvation, then how can there be anything we can do to lose salvation? So then who are these folks? Well, who they aren't is true believers who have turned away from Christ and are therefore eternally lost. They have no hope of ever repenting ever again. They're totally lost. I mean, I hope you can see how that just doesn't comport with the gospel. Um, that's who, the, who they're not. Who they are, there are two choices, and honestly, I don't know which one of these is right. Um, but they could be those who have dabbled in faith and have been around the church but have never truly come to faith in Christ. So if they do not come to faith in Christ, they are lost really popular saying back in the day when I was in college was going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in your garage makes you a car. Uh, so they might be around church, they might be around folks, but they aren't, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are saved. Um, the second choice is that they are true believers 
but for whatever reason, they have decided to reject Christ. Now, they will come under God's judgment for that and discipline for that. And if you've ever known anyone, because all of you are going, hey, wait a minute, I've known someone I really thought was a believer. I know someone I really thought was a believer who has, uh, at this point in, in his life, turned away from God. So, so, you know, what does that mean then? They will come under God's judgment and discipline for that. And that's scary enough as it is. But I do not believe they can ultimately lose the salvation that they didn't earn in the first place. So keep this in mind, uh, and also keep in mind that there's nothing in this passage that says that there's some point while a person is living that they're cut off, no more chances, it's done, you're damned. It, it, there's nothing that says they can't at some point while they are living turn back to Christ Again, while they are in apostasy, it is impossible. But if something happens that they realize, I was wrong, and they turn, they will be accepted back by God. The whole uh, of Scripture teaches that. Um, so so they, they, they can't, and, and, and actually that's, our author is both trying to prevent people from turning away and encourage those who have turned away to come back. If there was no way for them to change their minds and come back, he wouldn't be encouraging them to do so. Well, we're going to run out of time here, so we're going to skip the agricultural analogy. I really don't understand agriculture anyway, so it's not so bad. Um, and then at the end, he turns and he says, look, I have faith in you. I have faith that you, you will do the right thing and you will go on. In fact, that word for, for I have confidence is, is a word that I have complete conviction of this. Um, but I would like to end just with a, with a short application of this because I think we both have to have a healthy fear of falling away from God and also understand that we have a God who loves us deeply. Hear me when I say that if you have come to know Christ, you can be assured of your salvation. The doubts we face, the fears we have, the things we suffer cannot unsave us. Nothing can unsave us. Romans 8 says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. At the same time, I believe we need to have a healthy fear. I believe that we cannot take our faith for granted nor Jesus' sacrifice for our sins lightly. And realize that we are all capable of drifting away from God. I know what's in me. And it is capable of drifting away from God. Um, and e but even if we do, we will not lose our salvation. We will come under God's loving discipline and judgment for doing so, but we will not lose our salvation which is why the author has continuously exhorted his listeners to pay attention, to persevere, and to endure to the end. So what I want to end with I, for you, I hope, is something that will be an encouragement to you. And that is this. God takes great pleasure in you. In the, in the movie Chariots of Fire, which my husband watches on average once a week, and it's a long movie, but anyway... Eric Little said that when he runs, he felt God pleasure. He felt God's pleasure. The first time I went to Royal Family Kids Camp, I was really excited to be there. And the night before the campers came, uh, 
Jenny Thingval was praying, and she said, uh, Lord, allow us to fill your pleasure this week. And I'm sitting there going, well, that's a silly prayer. God's pleasure. I, mean, I don't want to feel his power. I want to feel his presence. But his pleasure? Look, I got it when that week was over because I have never in my life felt God's pleasure the way I do every year at camp for that week. That God is pleased with what we are doing. George Guthrie says, in 1834, Isaac Disraeli stated, it is a wretched, it is a wretched taste to be gratified with mediocrity, mediocrity when the excellent lies before us. As Christ followers, we are challenged to reject lives of mediocrity in which neither we nor others can witness the powerful ministry of God's spirit in and through us. Lazy Christians who display paralyzing passivity in regard to ministry have treated the wine of the gospel given to bring joy and fullness of life to ourselves and others as if it were water. Insipid, ineffectual Christians bear witness to little and are those about whom little can be borne witness. Let us, therefore, show diligence to the very end, giving ourselves and others a source for encouragement and living in joyful awareness of heaven's applause. Ladies, God delights in you. He loves you. He sings over you. Let that delight encourage you today and cause you, motivate you to live fully for him. Let's pray. Father God, it is an extraordinary thing to feel your pleasure. I pray, Father, that each of us would feel that as we move forward, that you delight in us, that you sing over us, love us. What an amazing thing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks, ladies. Sorry we're even a little later today. <laughs>